Do you want to greet the people? No, you do the worky stuff. <laughs> All right, fair <laughs> I'm enough. Sorry, I'm that lazy right now. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to Dear Reader. This is a show where two old friends talk about the most interesting thing that they've read in the last month. I am one of the old friends, Michael. Hello, I'm Emily. (laughs) And uh, it is the end of May, and it has finally got nice here in Toronto. I don't know about back in Newfoundland. It's actually a nice day today. Mm -hmm. Like, probably not as nice as there, but it was like nine degrees and sunny. (laughs) So, <laughs> this is what counts as nice and new We're so excited. We went out. We got iced coffee. We went. We like planted the community garden. Mm-hmm. It, we had snow on Wednesday. Yeah, the well, kid next door made a little snowman. There is a, a proverb that May snow is good for sore eyes, and it's not like a sight for sore eyes. It's like you're supposed to apply it to eyes that are sore, and. This is, I mean, you know this already probably, but listeners who aren't from Newfoundland may not. And I always was like, yeah, it's it's not that, it's it's because it will snow in May a couple of times most years. <laughs> <laughs> like May snow is an actual thing. <laughs> like, yeah. What have you been up to the last month? Um, momming a mm-hmm. lot. I've been doing a lot of momming. I, uh, I developed a mania for sewing. I decided to sew all my children's clothes like a prairie mom because I don't have <laughs> enough to do. But I haven't actually done any sewing because of all the all the child care. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's that's about it. Well, that's cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I read I read things. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and not a lot. But I did yeah. finish House of the Spirits. Yeah, yeah. So last episode, you you were about halfway through it. So so how was how was the conclusion? The stunning conclusion. Um, it was really good. It became good in a different way. It oh, became yeah? much more grounded and realistic at about the uh, the socialist revolution and then a military coup crushing of that revolution. Mm. And it was actually kind of um, really interesting how the magical elements the spirituality of the book receded as um events in the world became that much more real and and sort of invaded the house you know like Mm -hmm. this in early in the book this house is this i don't want to say fortress almost like an island it's it's in this big city that's plagued by all kinds of problems but it's and it's never named city country but it's obviously in south america yeah it seems isolated, but as the revolution kind of touches everyone, the spirits and the magic recede. There's actually kind of almost like, it's almost like a little joke. The The father of the family thinks he's still hearing ghosts and spirits in the house, but what he's hearing are fugitives that have been hidden mm. in the house. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so yeah, it became very different, but yeah. still very good. Still highly mm-hmm. recommend. Uh, have you read... Galore by Michael Crummy? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, I of course that. you have. We've talked about this now that my memory is getting into gear. That's one of my top Newfoundland books of all time. Oh, yeah. Me too. A hundred percent. But like um, it kind of does a similar thing, right? As it gets towards mm-hmm. the modern day, like the magical yeah. elements kind of fall off. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I know that he was really influenced by Marquez. I wonder if he's read Allende. That would be interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I had you have dinner. like a passing acquaintance with him, don't you? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I met him a couple of times. Okay. Um, we're not like pals. I, I have his email somewhere, but we don't like message each other regularly. Yeah, it wouldn't be worth like out of the blue. Uh, <laughs> I, I ate dinner across from him at a academic conference. And it was only a table with like four of us. So it was like... Mm. And this is oh, when Galore was doing well. Yeah. And um, he had been on like the uh, the NPR, the big NPR book show in the States. And I remember I saw it on the shelf at um, one of the fancy bookstores in Manhattan. Um, I don't remember which one now. And the clerk was like, oh, I've been meaning to read this. And I was like, ooh, look at you, Michael Crummy. Uh, <laughs> Homeboy makes good. Yeah. And, and later on, I organized a reading at the University of Toronto because I, I, I used to be a PhD. For listeners who don't know, I used to be in the PhD program at the University of Toronto, and I was really involved in student life there. I like to volunteer for things. So I was part of the Canadian Literature Reading Group, and I got a Michael Crummy and Michael Winter doubleheader um, 
reading one time. So I, I had to like email them and arrange it and I emceed the event. So I introduced them. And anyways, <laughs> I vaguely know Michael Crummy. He's a lovely person. He seems very sweet. <laughs> yeah. What's he written lately? Um, you know, that's a good question. Because like he's... Michael Winter has one like every other year or something, right? Or am I confusing them? I do that. Um, no, no. Uh, you're you're right. But Michael Winter, I don't think has had anything for a little while, but nor has Michael Crummy. Like Sweetland was the last novel of his that I'm aware of. And oh, I love Sweetland. Was... Oh, me too. It's that was amazing. even better. I was so mad when that mm-hmm. didn't win the Giller that I went, I marched straight out and bought the winner. <laughs> and uh, I know that sounds... <laughs> It's like I'll punish you by reading. My- it's not the author's fault yeah. that he won, but it is not as good. Mm-hmm. Gonna, I mean, it's a good book. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. and I did read it open minded because I like to believe in awards. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard sometimes, but I like to think that awards are worth things. So I was like, I want to see how good this book is, and mm-hmm. it was just like, no. no. I was there's a podcast I really like called Tea with Alice, and it's hosted by Alice Frazier, who's a stand up comedian from Australia. But the podcast is not funny, and like she's kind of one of these serious stand-up comedians. So I guess oh, I guess her work okay. is funny, but she likes to deal with serious topics. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like. and um, what she does with uh, her podcast is she gets different guests on and she asks them what they're struggling with lately. She was chatting with someone in her most recent, as of this recording episode, and she was talking about being a judge on a, a, an award panel, and and since she had that experience she thinks about awards differently and that she thinks once you get to a certain level like the quality is assured Mm -hmm. and really if you have like a short list of five all of them are good enough to win and you sort of pick the winner based on sort of what you want this award to say you know Mm. i can see that and i don't disagree with it um but like we've talked about how sometimes you need to raise up those have been put down but i don't know if that's necessarily the case with us conductors versus yeah. sweetland mm-hmm. hard to say i mean it's not like us conductors is written by any visible minority that i'm aware of or yeah i mean and that's one vector you could yeah the, uh, i'm sure there's others yeah. i mean politically it's about a russian gulag mm. and a theraphin player <laughs> so <laughs> i've not read it which i'm a bad canadian so i used to canadian literature used to be my thing yeah yeah, it's um, it's got its moments. Do you want to segue into talking about our books? Oh, we should. Yeah, I was about to segue into talking about Canadian literature. So the book that I read this month is called uh, Newfoundland Portfolio: A History in Portraits by J. Uh, J. M. Sullivan. Um, it's really weird for me to say that because it's Joan Sullivan. She's the editor of the Newfoundland Quarterly, a publication that I've written for a few times a long time ago. It's been like seven or eight years since I had a piece placed with them, but it's, and. To connect mm-hmm. to your Michael story, she mm-hmm. spoke at a symposium. I arranged an MC. <laughs> she's great. She is <laughs> she's the best. So lovely. She's really lovely as a person. She's the best editor I've ever worked with. Like she is sharp as a scalpel, <laughs> uh, but like so, like she made me understand what I had written in a way that I didn't before. <laughs> I was like, oh, like I'm understanding it better based on what you were saying, and I'm the one who wrote it. <laughs> which is an amazing experience. It's so gratifying to have an editor like that. But anyways, this is a collection of obituaries of notable Newfoundlanders that she's published over, let's say, the last 15, 18 years in the um, Globe and Mail. And so it's really weird. Go to Newfoundland obituary person. Yeah, that's yeah. basically yeah. That's interesting. Someone Makes notable sense. from Newfoundland dies, and they're worthy of a, like a five hundred or seven hundred and fifty or even a thousand word obituary, like one of these little biographical portraits. She is the one that they go to. Um, Good one to go to. Absolutely, and this is a really interesting sort of. I've never read a collection of obituaries before, and it really kind of functions as a combination of almost like a who's who of like notable Newfoundlanders because most of it is about their lives and what they did and, and who they were, who they were rather. Um, It's not much about how they died, but like it always does begin and end with that. So it's, it's this constant memento mori, but at the same time, it's just this sort of lovely examination of Newfoundland society um in a way like it's history but it's not 
sort of the great man. I mean, this is funny because I was going to say it's not the great man theory, but clearly it is because they yeah. don't just give like everyday Joe Schmoes like 750 words in the Globe and Mail and they die. They do not. <laughs> but like most of them aren't super duper famous. I, some of them I've heard of before. Some of them I haven't. Um, for the listener who might not be aware, I grew up in Newfoundland as as you did, yeah. Emily. And that's where we know each other from. And Newfoundland is an unusual place. And it is not like the rest of Canada. It is an island. It only joined Canada in 1949. And it's because of its geographical and cultural distance from the rest of the country, it kind of still holds itself somewhat distinct. And that's why a book of Newfoundland obituaries might be notable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if Manitoba would have such a same book. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they would. <laughs> they might. <laughs> they might. Canada is so big and so sparsely populated that each province really does have a distinct feeling and a distinct identity, but even more so for Newfoundland. Yeah, if there's anything I learned in Canadian history, it's that nobody really wants to be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But yeah, so when Newfoundland joined Canada in 1949, it was really an undeveloped, for the most part, like St. John's had some, and then the couple of towns that had large military bases, like the one I grew up in, had some, but like most places... Uh, sorry, some what? Some some development, sorry. Yes. Um, but most places didn't, like they didn't have electricity or roads or indoor plumbing. <laughs> like, And so because this collection of obituaries is largely dealing with people who were dying in 2000 and 2003 and 2008 and whatnot. They were people who were sort of doing notable things in the 20th century when Newfoundland was kind of joining the modern world. <laughs> so it was kind of a really interesting, almost portrait of a society establishing itself, which was quite cool. Yeah. And we, we are a culture that sort of clusters around our big bin. Oh, I think more huh. so than others. That's that's a thing with us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it continues. <laughs> yeah, to our detriment, I would say. But it, it, it's true that big personalities play well here. Yes. But a lot of these obituaries are also of women. And a lot of them are of artistic people and pioneers. And people who set up theaters or wrote plays or, or did painted portraits um so i i think i don't want to keep calling her joan but that's because i know her like i know her personally i should call I her like okay sullivan <laughs> oh i'm sure she would be but like <laughs> if this was like uh, uh isabel allende I, I would just say allende does this mm. so should i say like sullivan does this i'm sure like she has a hand in sort of choosing who she writes about. Um, I don't know if the Globe and Mail rings her up and says, we want you to do an obituary of X or Y if she has the right to refuse. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think... I mean, I she think... probably could, but she mm-hmm. might not. Yeah. Anyway. And it's it's interesting, too, because, like, these are... Correct me if I'm wrong. These are not necessarily all the Globe and Mail obituaries. These are all her obituaries, right? Yeah. These right. are all ones that she's written. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. she obviously may have missed some mm-hmm. in doing that. Like, she might not have been asked or she might have been asked and not been able to or whatever. Yeah, there are 42, there are 42 in here. And it's just this really interesting way to approach history. Because you're looking at the sort of notable actors, you get a lot of the events there's one in here for uh, Bridget Judge, who everyone called Bridie. And um, she is a folk singer who's from Patrick's Cove, which is about a half hour south of where I grew up. And um, I remember going down to Cuslet, which is the next community south of Patrick's Cove, and watching a play at the little community theater there, all about uh, Bridie Judge and Patsy Judge, her husband, who was a singer as well, and how they had between them basically collected and saved from being lost hundreds of folk songs from the Cape Shore of Newfoundland, which is the region. And it was so interesting to have that. Like they died, she died in 1999. I would have been 16. I I had no idea who she was when she died. And I am familiar with her because I saw this one little play. And now here I am reading this obituary about her and how she did so much to preserve and promote the legacy of Newfoundland folk music. 
And in a small society like Newfoundland, where it's it's only half a million people, things really can get lost. And oftentimes, it's just one individual who stands between something being saved and something being forgotten, you know? Yeah, exactly. Actually, there was a, um, I can't remember who, there was a local singer, songwriter, um, and in an interview in the Telegram, the local newspaper, he was lamenting that there was no folklore music archive. There actually is. Mm-hmm. I know the woman who works there. <laughs> <laughs> and he just wasn't aware of it, even as a traditional folk singer himself. Yeah. So, I mean, it just goes to show like that even when there are repositories, it's so easy for people even involved to not have it at their fingertips. Assuming, presumably, he was not giving over his materials to the to the folklore yeah. archive. Exactly. Like now even. He is. <laughs> Even what's there, people might not be aware of it. Exactly. Like the the judge collection is at the Mun Folklore Archive, and they do have an, a huge uh, folk music uh, repository there. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't know it's there. It, it's still by no means complete. There is a lot that has been lost. But Newfoundland society changed so quickly in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Well, in terms of change, something I I always point to, and again, I don't know how relevant this is, but my dad is the youngest of 13, Mm -hmm. 10 boys. Um, The boys that were born after Confederation are all over six feet tall. Mm -hmm. And the ones born before are not. None of them are six feet. And I put that down to not necessarily money because my family's, my father's family had money, but availability and education regarding nutrition. Mm -hmm. 100%. And we're talking about a few years, like five to 10 in difference. I'm trying to figure out how to word this. (laughs) (laughs) Living here in Ontario for the last almost 10 years, which is crazy. Um. I, I'm always reluctant to feed in to the narrative that Newfoundlanders are poor and ignorant, which is yeah. a thing that persists, much to my frustration. But before we joined Canada, mostly not our own fault, just because of the circumstances of colonialism and geography and uh, capitalism, Newfoundland was very, very poor, and most of the people were not very well educated. Yeah, I put that down again like, to the word availability. Yes. Um, more than, you know, some people were well educated, obviously. Mm-hmm. Some people um, had money. Like my my father's mother was well educated and the family had money. Um, it just, you know, in the little community where they lived, you couldn't get, you just didn't have access. Yeah. Until the base came. Mm-hmm. I still remember there's that story of an American who was on either the Pollocks or the Truxton, one of the two ships that wrecked in uh, on the west side of Placentia Bay during oh, World War II. I know who you're talking about. Yes. And he was African-American mm-hmm. and, you know, subject to all the terrible racism that existed in the United States in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And the ships wrecked on the rocks and um, several hundred people died, but also many were saved. The locals pulled them ashore and... But he was black, but the locals had never seen a black person. And so they were trying to scrub the oil off of his skin. And, you know, it's a happy story in that they treated him really, really well. And he was on the record as saying, like, this is the first time he felt treated fairly by white people who didn't have any sort of hatred in their hearts toward him. And, you know, he went on to have a great relationship with the community um, that went on for the rest of his life. However, um, I can remember this story was posted on Metafilter, which is this website where interesting links are shared and and people comment on them. And someone was saying that they found it unbelievable because even if there are no black people living in the community, hadn't they seen Gone with the Wind? (laughs) I was like, like, you know nothing about Newfoundland. Watching a movie? (laughs) I dropped my headphones (laughs) Because, like, you didn't have a movie theater, did you? No, I grew up, like, 100 <laughs> miles away from a movie theater. <laughs> like, yeah, St. John's had movie theater. St. John's played Gone with the Wind. Maybe sure. Stephenville. Yeah. Argentia, St. John's, Stephenville, Gander. 
they would have been the other place. <laughs> there, there was not a, you could not even drive an automobile into this community at this time. I'm, I'm like there would have been no electricity. <laughs> like my <laughs> husband's father in the fifties and sixties grew up in a t- on an island with no automobile <laughs> yeah. or electricity. Like mm-hmm. you can you couldn't drive across the island of Newfoundland until nineteen sixty five. Oh my god! Okay. All right. Yeah, let's just go see Gone with the Wind every day. <laughs> like, it's not even like, you know, if you're in like some like isolated farm in Ohio and maybe you'd have to like drive a couple of hours to go see a movie. It's like, it, it's like, no, no, no. You do not understand like how very close to a medieval existence it was. There were um, gasoline motors in the boats and most communities would have had one or two battery powered radios, which could be run for a couple of hours a week. Mm-hmm. And that would be it. Other than that, you're basically living in the same way that you would have done in like Elizabethan times. <laughs> like, yeah. Again, towns with American bases, exception. Yeah, but <laughs> exactly. And there would have been like three of those. <laughs> so, One other thing that this book had made me think about. So I, I picked up this book when I was home last, which I guess would have been Christmas time. I got it at Broken Books which is uh, basically the independent bookstore in downtown St. John's. And I was wondering if we wanted to talk a little bit about our local bookstores, because it's something that I think about and the relationship between independent bookstores and like selecting books. We should. Mm -hmm. um, But the thing is, there are two or three new ones. Ooh, tell me. Um, And I haven't been to any of them because... I have a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> and a toddler. And another thing, as much as I love St. John's, they're not great at making things wheelchair accessible, mm-hmm. which also makes them hard to get in with a stroller. Not the same struggle as a wheelchair. I don't want to say it's equivalent, but. Yeah, there's a there's a good argument that is made in accessibility circles about how it's not, you're not making a special exception for the people who absolutely need it. But like this make these things can make life easier for many people it's like exactly like a a wheelchair accessibility is necessary for someone in a wheelchair it's nice for someone with a stroller like it it makes life better for a lot of people like yeah i took uh i took my kid my older kid to the new ice cream parlor mm -hmm. i had like it was just built it was being renovated for like six months it's on military road you'd actually love it it's really good Mm. but it had three big cement steps yep like he can walk but i had to carry him over Mm-hmm. And if I'd had my baby, we wouldn't have been able to go. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> but we did live in a city, like where I lived, I think you'd moved away by then, that did not have an independent seller of new books for several years. Yes. Um, I mean, there was a used bookstore or two, and there was Chapters and Coles. Chapters and Indigo are basically the Canadian version of Barnes & Noble. And um, as much as it was kind of... You know, like, oh, big corporate presence and a flattening out of culture and like whatever, whatever. That was a lifeline when I oh, lived yeah. there. It was it became a community hub. Yeah. Because we had no um no large bookstores ever, I don't mm-hmm. think. And uh, although wordplay, I guess way back in the day, probably when I before you were here much. Yeah. May have been similar. I used they used to have a really nice children's section. My dad would kind of leave me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a good dad, just, you know. Yeah. No, no, it's Sometimes good. leave me there and go get a coffee. <laughs> exactly. I used to love being left in bookstores when I was young. Yeah, as a parent, I understand this completely. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I remember in high school and university, we would go hang out at chapters. Mm-hmm. It was there. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that's something I, I, I want to talk about is how bookstores are kind of social spaces, but not in the, like, oh, you go there to, like, talk and and like whatever but they they have well my husband likes to say that they're basically the closest thing he has to a church like like you go into a bookstore and it kind of like calms you down (laughs) yeah and i used to love going into bookstores and even if i didn't have anything in mind it was just i'll go into this bookstore and i'll spend a half hour looking around and picking things up and reading a couple pages and putting them back and just enjoying the atmosphere and it's something that I have more difficulty doing nowadays. And I don't know if it's because I have this feeling of guilt that if I buy a book here, I'm probably not going to read it or what. The, the author still gets the money. It's true. <laughs> there is a there's a lovely independent bookstore in my neighborhood up here in Toronto uh, called Queen Books. It's on Queen East. And it only opened there uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Maybe the one less we than went that. To? 
because that was yeah we brought you there yeah that was almost two years ago that we yeah were there. so it was, it's been it's been there for about two years and i can remember when it was opening it was like oh boy our neighborhood is finally getting a bookstore there was no expectation it would be particularly good it was just going to be nice to have and then when it opened it was like this might be the best small to medium-sized bookstore in toronto it's fabulous <laughs> had a gorgeous children's section that's so well curated mm-hmm. and this is the kind of thing that I enjoy when I go home and I go to Broken Books as well, is it's so well curated. That's the thing with independent bookstores is the curation. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have a romantic idea of having this beautiful little bookstore, but they don't put enough thought into the selection. Yeah. That was the problem with the afterwards, I think. As much as I loved it, they always just had the same thing. Yeah, well, exactly. And whenever we would go there and I would bring Chris and he would be like, yeah, it's the same books as last time, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which I guess if you're not moving the stock, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, And afterwards was a used bookstore as well. So I guess they kind of had their hands tied a little. But They were, but like, I, I don't think, I know people who brought books in and a lot and were turned away Yeah, or offered much too little. Mm-hmm. So I think they were a little, as much, and again, I feel bad because dude who ran it, you know, it was so sweet. But he was he was pretty stuck in his ways. Mm-hmm. Do you ever fantasize about like running your own bookstore and how you would like curate your selections? I might have when I was younger, mm-hmm. before I like knew people who ran businesses. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Do you remember Bennington Gate that used to be in the basement of the yes. of um, Churchill Square? I used yeah. to love that place, and my understanding of that was that was like run as like a hobby store by someone yeah, who had money. She had outside money. Yeah, and so it didn't need to turn a profit, and mm-hmm. I loved that. Like it was the first time I ever saw like an LBGT section. Mm-hmm. I don't think she called it that. I think it was like yep. It, that was know, my favorite books. bookstore in the city <laughs> for that reason because it felt counterculture, and it felt like I could find things in there which maybe were a little bit naughty, mm. not sexually so necessarily, but like. Oh, sometimes like, sexually. Sometimes sexually so. Because my which, dad liked to browse in there too and yeah. would sometimes leave me there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I found stuff that was inappropriate. Yeah. And and do you know what? I'm going to have a hot take here. I think it's important for like 13, 14, 15 year olds to like be allowed to find things that aren't bad, bad, but like are a little bit, you know, risque mm. and whatnot. They're figuring themselves out. How else are they going to do it? That's like, the, well, 13, 14, 15 is older than I was thinking. <laughs> Well, you know what? I also think like if a nine-year-old sees a boob, whatever. Oh yeah, well that's fine. And I, I've, and I, looking back, I'm going to revise, and I will definitely abandon my children in bookstores while I go to get coffee. <laughs> yeah. In the future. Well, like, when they're a bit older. When they're a bit older, like if you can trust, like, oh, my kid is like a quiet, well-behaved kid who loves to read. They're going to be fine here. <laughs> I used to fantasize about running a bookstore mm-hmm. and I wanted to have it be island themed. And I thought I will only have books here that are like set on islands or about islands or are by writers who are from islands and will be island books and will be cool. And I was like, that's what I would do if I had like a hundred million dollars <laughs> and I could leave someone else to like run the day to day. You just swan in once in a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it'd be great. Like I used to think about like, oh, it'd be really cool like to have the nonfiction section where like, here's a book about Iceland. Here's a book about the Falkland Islands. Here's a book about Hawaii. And like, then I could have like Treasure Island and uh, Utopia. These are all set on islands, you know, and, and Gulliver's Travels. It's like, oh, it'd be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> Be. I don't know how long it would last. <laughs> well, exactly. I hate if I had a hundred million dollars, it would be fine if it ran at a loss. Some some rich people buy boats. I would have a bookstore that lost money. <laughs> it's better than a super yacht. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, like the Newfoundland portfolio, the book by Joan Sullivan. If you're interested in Newfoundland and Newfoundland history, absolutely go read it. Um, she's a great writer. This is like 40, 43 portraits of really interesting people from the arts and business community and politics. And yeah. And if you don't know anything about Newfoundland, this is not the place to start. And I was going to ask that. Yeah. Like, yeah. does this work if you don't know like the outline of the history or? Well, I mean, they're all interesting people. A lot of them are eccentrics. Uh, I, I occasionally engaged in my bad habit of reading passages out loud to my husband without any warning or without like <laughs> asking if this was a good time. <laughs> Just, so, you know, there was stuff that I thought was amusing or interesting to the general audience, but you know, this is probably, probably not the best primer on Newfoundland. 
And if you are apathetic about Newfoundland, there's no reason for you to pick this up. <laughs> so, but I'm glad I read it. I, my PhD was in Newfoundland literature, mm-hmm. and I've had a particularly hard time reading that because that was what I failed at. I mean, I didn't fail oh. it. I, I no, I know what you're saying yes. though. Mm-hmm. It was the it was the the nexus of all of my anxieties is that, which is a real shame because I love it. And so this is kind of like okay, let's test the waters here let's see if i can get back into the subject area so interesting to go in like a non-fiction sort of way mm-hmm. i find non-fiction is less anxiety provoking i don't know why um well i sh- I, I can theorize pretty easily because fiction was what i worked on yeah you, well you and i both have this idea of like the novel as yeah. you know all capital letters exactly the high form mm-hmm. and that's why for a long time and this is gonna sound so weird but I would be shocked and a little appalled when I found out people I knew were writing or yeah. trying to write a novel. Like, even you a little, honestly. It's <laughs> okay. I'd be like, really? Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> I mean, that's not... <laughs> and I realized I had to get over that or nobody would ever be able to write anything. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the people who are amazing writers didn't start amazing. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'd be like, you, you think you want to be on the shelf next to whomever you know what I mean. yeah i know i know i know it's really funny <laughs> I, I realized i had to take my I've, I've said before i've been a literary snob i have to i've had to take that down in a number of ways mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really funny though because i've coming from the absolute opposite direction i was very arrogant when i was young and it wasn't that i thought i was going to be a great writer who would like win the nobel prize by the time i was 50 or something stupid like that i never thought that but i absolutely thought i was good enough to like have my book on the shelf at chapters by the time I was 30. You probably are, darling. Yeah, (laughs) I could be. Um, I've come to realize that, first of all, even if the talent is there, and I've I've had lots of people who definitely know what they're talking about tell me that as like a pro stylist, I am good enough. But like when you're 20, you probably don't have the wisdom or the experience to write a really good novel. (laughs) I think you would be a remarkable 20-year-old to do that. And I mean, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was a teenager, so it can happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's definitely like people like that. Yeah. But it's unusual. You know, you need to sort of gather experience. You need to sort of gather yeah. wisdom. The other thing about Mary Shelley is that everything about her was unusual. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so. I was arrogant as an 18-year-old where I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I was on Mary, Shelley, Mary Shelley's level. <laughs> like, <laughs> but you know, and now I'm older and I feel like I probably do have some of that wisdom and experience. I don't have any good ideas for stories. And mm. I think if you don't have an idea that's burning to get out there, you shouldn't force it. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you find mm-hmm. as an aging thing that you realize that you also have more time? Does that mm. sound crazy? Like, well, what do you mean? Well, okay. It occurred to, I I realized a few months ago, I do have a birding story. I don't know if I have the talent or the ability, but I realized there is a story I'd like to write. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, looking at my life right now, I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. But then I was like, you know what? Maybe in five or 10 years, I will. Yeah. Like when I was, if I, when I was like 20, I'd be like, oh my God, I have to write this. I have to get this out. I have mm-hmm. to do this. Right now I'm like, okay, that'll, that'll be something I'll come back to. Yeah. At a different stage in my life. Maybe even when I'm 60. Who knows? No, that makes sense. Um, it does go against the sort of mild existential panic that's been slowly building in me for the last several years. Where like time seems to be going faster. Uh, and like <laughs> it feels like there's less and less runway left. <laughs> I've been having the totally opposite experience. Mm-hmm. When I was in my 20s, I felt so urgent about everything. Yeah. And now I can just feel like I am so ready to be an old lady. Oh, that's great. I wish I could feel that way. (laughs) My friend and I watched Wine Country recently, which is about a bunch of women having midlife crises. Mm -hmm. Kind of a, you know, spin on the male trope. They're about 50. And we were both like, I'm going to be 36. She's going to be 34. We're both talking about how excited we are to be (laughs) (laughs) postmenopausal. And I mean, that might sound a little hubristic. Honestly, for me, I think it might be related to the whole biological clock thing or the societal pressure of the biological clock. Mm -hmm. As I have fulfilled my biological destiny as mandated by society by having two healthy boys. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nothing else matters. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no more pressure. <laughs> so what have you been reading? Okay. I, well, I finished uh, House of the Spirits, as mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. And I read a little novella called Convenience Store Woman. Oh. Uh, and excuse my pronunciation if it's wrong, by Sayaka Murata. Um, this is a recent book. Uh, it was written by a woman who's written about 10 books in Japan. This is her first, in- her first English translation. Uh, it won several awards. Many of her books have. It, I don't know. I don't remember why I put it on my holds list, but I did. And it was really small, so I could read. Yeah. Which is how books come to me. Yeah, I love novellas. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it was, and it's basically about this woman, Keiko, who works at a convenience store, as you might imagine. And I don't want to, I don't want to diagnose her, but she seems autistic or something. She, she's not. She's on the spectrum somehow. Yeah, she's yeah. not capable of normal human interaction right she does not understand other people's feelings and motivations she gets the job as a university student when she's 18 and she continues to work there for 18 years so she picks up when she's 36 and she loves her convenience store Hmm. she loves it she loves that there is a script she loves that there's a series of tasks she loves the order of it. Um, sometimes this almost goes to almost a religious place. She says she can, when she's not at the convenience store, she's not only thinking about it. She says she can hear it, mm. hear what it needs from her. She lives in a very small apartment. Um, she never describes it as unclean, but there's a mention of cockroaches. So you get the idea. It's, it's not very nice. Um but she only needs to rest so she can be a good convenience store worker. Hmm. She eats very plain food, rice, vegetables with no seasoning, are often leftover food from the store because she needs to fuel her body to be a convenience store worker. She takes days off because that allows her to be a better convenience store worker. And the kind of the conflict here is that her family and her friends, as she gets into her 30s, are growing increasingly concerned about her lack of motivation, the lack of relationships in her her life. She is very happy, but she doesn't have these things that they think is normal. Um, she meets a man at the convenience store who we'd probably describe as an incel. He's the sort of person who... You know, he thinks working at a convenience store is beneath him, so he won't work at the convenience store, but he can't get anything better because he won't work. Um, He thinks that women only are attracted to men for what they can give them. So he's very... And she begins a relationship with him, fairly improbably, but again, in kind of her strictly logical sort of way, because she thinks that if she has a boyfriend that people will get off her back. Right. And he thinks that if he has a girlfriend, it'll make him look better. So they kind of create this collaboration. It, it's very, like I said, it's a very short book and it's very sterile. There's very little, she, I don't want to say she's not capable of emotion, but her practicality sometimes borders on the psychopathic. There's scenes from her childhood and her memories where she's like, she sort of advocates practical violence, and uh, she's she goes regularly to visit her sister and her nephew, but she she doesn't understand her sister's love for her son. Right. She's like, this baby is crying. He's messing. Like, why why do we have to have this baby in the room? Mm-hmm. And while I certainly understand people who don't love babies, most people understand that they need to exist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's um, it's sort of the climax of the book is when she realizes that her sister and her friends are happier with her 
when she leads a life that they think of as normal, but she's unhappy. Right. <clears throat> rather than when she is leading a life that they see as weird, but she's happy. And it, it's it's interestingly sort of nonconformist. Usually when we think of a nonconformist, we don't think of somebody who so strictly conforms. If I'm, I'm phrasing that correctly. Yeah. Because what I say, she's following the script. She's wearing the uniform. She's living. The, she's doing exactly perfect. But that's what makes her kind of strange in society. Yeah, she sort of through this learns to embrace her own weirdness. I guess she she decides to, to dump the guy, to give up the job search, to be a convenience store wo- woman, and therefore fulfill her destiny. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I had to look her up to get her name <clears throat> for this. And I noticed that the trans- the English translation um, calls the book Convenience Store Woman. But the Wikipedia article, which is translated from Japanese, trans- calls it Convenience Store Person, mm. which I think is a fairly significant difference here. Yes. Especially because she has no... Like it is a woman, but she has no sexual drive. Right. And she likes to lose herself in the anonymity and functionality of her job. She actually says at one point, um, this is the 21st century. We're not men and women. We're convenience store workers. (laughs) Because that's the job, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Is it like a comment on like the depersonalization of contemporary life? I mean, it sounds like it is, but also it sounds like it's coming. It's not coming down against it necessarily. It's like, well, these are the sort of habits and ways of life that, you know, our stage, late stage of capitalism, the service economy kind of um, encourages encourages us into. And if someone sort of wants to, like lean into that and that's what makes them feel happy and fulfilled being this sort of, I don't well, I don't want to say robotic because that's not no, a robotic great. robotic works yeah. for this. Yeah. No, I see yeah. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's something to that. Mm-hmm. It's also though, it's almost like a play on the idea of nonconformity. Yes. And conformity because she, you know, usually, we think of a nonconformist, ironically, in a particular way. Yeah. I once I once had a friend who was super into like the whole goth scene and he loved to call himself a nonconformist. And I said, how are you a nonconformist if you and your friends are all dressed exactly the same? <laughs> it used to drive me crazy. Like not that there's anything against like wearing all in black or whatever, yes. but you have to admit you are conforming to yeah. a particular aesthetic. Yeah. Conforming to an like something that's alternative to the norm, but it is in itself, in a smaller way, uh, uh, just a different norm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where she's not conforming to any norm that she's aware of. Yeah. She knows that her other convenience store employees are not like her. Mm-hmm. She is often frustrated that they're they're putting their own needs in front of the store's needs. Yes. Um, so, but it is, it's a different way to be happy, I guess. Yeah. And in a kind of way, like it seems like I do work in the service industry. I, I am a personal trainer now, but I am very lucky. That's in a that different kind of service. It's a very different kind of service. <laughs> it is very idiosyncratic and personalized. And it's like I uh, people pay me to spend an hour paying very close attention to what they're doing and sort of motivating them and correcting them. So um, it's, it's a very different kind of thing than stocking shelves and manning a cash register. Um, but, you know, I do have to create and inhabit a certain persona when I'm doing that. Absolutely. And I I do have to put my own needs to one side and someone else's needs ahead. Um, And that's kind of what those of us who work all have to do. (laughs) And and, um, it is, I often think about, I've been very lucky in my life that I've never had to have a truly dreadful job. All of my jobs have been pretty okay even the ones that were like minimum wage and whatnot when i was a student uh and and just after um they've all been okay but i think about the people who have like really truly dreadful jobs or at least jobs that look there i am with the judgment to my (laughs) eyes like they're dreadful because clearly this convenience store worker in your book 
doesn't feel that it's a dreadful job. <laughs> no, she loves it. Yeah. And, and like, wouldn't that be a better way to be if you're stuck in that or not even stuck? If you are doing that, mm-hmm. if you could be happy, wouldn't you choose to be <laughs> like? Exactly. And it, it is a lot of think about how we judge these jobs. Now, it's 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 clear she's not normal. Mm-hmm. This job is not right. something a normal person can enjoy long term yes. because it's it like convenience store work is incredibly grueling. It is yep. very low paid. There's very little reward. Um, now, she just happens to be wired in a way that. Yeah. But it, there is a lot about the judgment. Um, she has to come up with excuses for why she has this job as a college educated woman in yeah. her 30s. I mean, like, but why would she want to be normal if, you know, she is happy and we are in a society where depression and dissatisfaction are like epidemic. (laughs) Exactly. Like she's, and I, I, some of the stuff I was reading was talking about the epidemic of, uh, or the growing incidence of depression in Japan and even asexuality in Japan, which some people are concerned about. Um, I don't think, I don't think they're concerned about individuals being asexual. I think they're concerned about the birth rate. Yes. Again, this is from an article I read. This is not from me. But, you know, she does not need no man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she doesn't need a man. She doesn't want a man. She does not have romantic or sexual leanings. It's not that she's repressing them. She doesn't have them. Yes. She does not need a challenge beyond the convenience store. She does not need the all the things a better career can buy you. Yeah. She doesn't care about her apartment. She doesn't care what she eats. She doesn't care about her entertainment or social times. She doesn't care about having a family. These are she does not prioritize what society expects pe- women people and especially women to prioritize. <laughs> There's a lot about how as a woman especially she should be more focused on having babies, especially now that her younger sister has had a baby. The interesting thing too is that the author they mention also worked 18 years at a convenience store. Oh, wow. And a lot of people are talking about how, oh, maybe this, you know, she drew on her experiences. And maybe she did to an extent, but she also wrote 10 books in that time. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not the same. (laughs) Exactly. And that's another reason we need to think about how we look at these jobs. Yes. Because most writing, most writers cannot support themselves by their writing. No, very That's not the world we live in anymore. Yeah. So I'm assuming she she needed to work to support herself, but at a job that would not interfere too much with her writing because she has been successful. She's published 10 books. She's won several awards. So I don't think we can necessarily say that she is the convenience store woman. Right. But I think she is making a strong statement to say that you can be a convenience store woman. And that's okay. Yes. Maybe maybe one of her coworkers uh, resembled the title character. Or maybe she thought in, you know, were circumstances different, I could be like this, but I'm not, you know? Yeah. I worked at Walmart for three years, mm-hmm. uh, mostly on cash. And I was actually very good at it. Like, I won awards. <laughs> Weird as that sounds. And I mean, I didn't like it, but this book made me question, like, if this, if Walmart had been or cash registering in general had been a more supportive environment that had paid a salary that was commensurate with the kind of life I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. Maybe I would have considered it differently. Yeah. One of the things that I like about my career change is that academia was far too high pressure. You were expected to be incredibly ambitious and to basically dedicate your entire life to furthering your career. Mm -hmm. Like the whole idea, like (laughs) I saw a tweet asking if it was okay to take a weekend off and being like, yeah, Yeah. you should take every weekend off. That's what they're for. (laughs) But like academia does this to you where like every spare moment you should be reading something that's pertinent to your field or you should be thinking about the paper that you're going to be giving in a couple of weeks, or you should be working on your notes for the lecture you have to give in class or whatever. And that is so stifling. And I sometimes feel like by choosing a much lower prestige like field, 
I'm just a personal trainer now. I'm freelance, so I'm my own boss. And like, I don't know, because academic labor now is very precarious, if you can't get a um, good position or uh, and it's low paid, I make as much or more money what I'm doing now. But mm-hmm. it's not fancy. It's not prestigious. No, exactly. And that's the irony is mm-hmm. that the more prestigious job would have required you to totally subsume your identity. Mm-hmm into it, which is actually what our convenience store woman has done. Yes. <laughs> Just for a lower prestige job. Exactly. And I mean, and she's happy at it. And I can remember in our professionalization course, basically being told, you won't be happy getting like a tenure track professorship at a big research institution, unless you want to that to be your life. Mm-hmm. Like you basically have to sign over your existence to it. And if that's what you want, then you will find it very fulfilling and challenging and rewarding. But if you want to have a work-life balance, it's not not a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar thought when I dropped out of law school, is that I wanted a job. Like, anyone who knows me knows that having a family has always been very important to me. Uh, not to put that on anyone else, just important to me. <clears throat> so I want to get off work at five, and I want the weekends. And I don't want to worry about someone's life hanging in the balance, because I've done that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have nothing but respect for the people who are lawyers or academics or otherwise doing those things. But I realize that that is not the life I wanted. Yeah. Because that's not what now. Again, I've chosen a path that is very socially acceptable, <laughs> especially yeah. for a woman. Mm-hmm. But it's it is about choosing what you want your life to look like. Yeah. And I mean, you're very intelligent. You're very highly educated. And like you have chosen a path that is socially acceptable. Like there's a lot of pressure on women to have babies. You've had babies. So you're doing something that gets like reward from society. But do you ever feel like, oh, well, like I'm so intelligent, more is expected of me professionally. And like, I hate that because I, I feel that pressure and I hate it. <laughs> hmm. I think I definitely expected more of myself. Hmm. My career had stalled out for a while. Um, I work as an archivist. I don't know if I've mentioned that or not. Um, And I do like that very much. Mm -hmm. But I started a new job, um, which was a big step last just before I went on maternity leave, Um, which was a big step up. And the people there are kind of blown away by me, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to be real humble about it. Yeah. Um, So that was a big boost. So career wise, I'm feeling pretty good right now, actually. I mean, I will be when I'm working again. I'm still on maternity leave. I'm, I'm glad to hear it because, like, it's great. Like, that's a great feeling. And if you, like, I think there's a gender thing going on here, too. Like, mm, I have definitely. thousands and thousands of years of, like, m- like men <laughs> being, like, the smart ones in charge. Like, whereas, like, oh, a smart woman who's rewarded for her intelligence is, like, an important political thing. So like yeah. th- there's a difference there. Um, I have a certain amount of privilege being able to be like, well, I'm going to take my sparkling intellect and like remove it from my like sort of high aspirations. <laughs> like <laughs> look at us congratulating ourselves on how smart we are. <laughs> Aren't we so smart? We were, we chose our bliss, which we had the freedom to do because of our privilege. <laughs> I- I'm very interested in this book. Um, I, I find it very interesting. We've done a lot of Japanese literature on the show. I know, isn't that weird? It is. I don't think I've ever read so much Japanese literature as I have in the last few months. I guess it's just... There must be something in the air. Coming to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just... I tend to read books that just sort of come to me, like... Oh, I am reading a book by a man right now. Oh, yes? So we may How have rare. our first... Not first. You've talked about men. I, I, twice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we we might have our first man on the podcast, or like yeah. male writer. But. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, I've talked about two men, and we are at this point have twelve. So yeah, five. I don't think I've talked about. I have not read a man this year, and again, not by design. It's just yeah, what's coming from me. And speaking of, just to go a little mm-hmm. off topic, but sure. do you get super excited for summer reading? Yes. Um, <laughs> It's interesting. Okay. So I have a lot of my favorite reading memories. And this is actually a, a related question I might pose back to you. Do you remember reading things? I remember reading Mrs. Dalway on a bench in Trinity Bellwoods Park. I remember reading um, Mall Flanders at uh, Christie Pitts Park here in Toronto. Um, 
I, I have lots of happy memories of sitting in the sun and reading. Um, yeah, so, I do. Some of them, depending on the book. Yeah. So the last couple of summers, I've not been reading because I burned out hard on reading. This summer, we'll see. Um, I live pretty close to Woodbine Beach, so. Summer is a good time for, for um, slump busting. Mm-hmm. Because you summers when all the like juicy stuff comes out. <laughs> I was it's so funny because I'm still having a lot of trouble actually reading. Mm-hmm. It's better than it was. I I put like eight books on hold at the library the other day, and I was like, when am I going to read these? <laughs> you know what I figured out? What's in terms of reading? Okay, my older son, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, does not like for me to read around him. Yes. I found out if I read what I'm reading to him, he's happy with that. Oh. So I was reading to him from House of the Spirits and Convenience Store Woman. Now, he wasn't paying super close attention. He'd like sit on my lap for like a page yeah. and then kind of wander off and I'd just read silently and then he'd come back and I'd read another couple paragraphs out loud. <laughs> but he's cool with this. That's that's a good workaround. It is. And I mean, and he's not, I don't think he's absorbing it. And I... I skipped a couple chapters about the torture scene and stuff like that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, we'll come back to this. Um, you know, obviously, just in case. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like it's not hurting him to hear, you know, big words yeah. and sentence constructions that are a little different and more complicated. You're just sort of acclimatizing him to the idea that it's a normal thing for people to sit down and read books. Exactly. And, you know, like he'll, you know, listen to a couple paragraphs and they'll go play with his trains. And- mm-hmm. I can read a little bit. I mean, it's still not a lot. It's like four or five pages. <laughs> you know, four or five pages here and there, it adds it's up. It's better. <laughs> it's better than zero. 100%. So this is my advice to any other moms who are trying to read. <laughs> oh, man, I had this thing happen. I took this book. It's called Blindness. I can't remember the name of the author. It's what I'm reading now. Mm-hmm. I was like, ooh, I'm going to sit down and start my book. And I read exactly the first page. <laughs> and then I had to go do something. Have you ever done that? Have you read just one page of a book? <laughs> page one. Yeah, but ordinarily then when I come back, I'll just read the first page over again because it feels like such a false start. So I am planning to read Meg Cole's novel, Small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club. Oh, okay. Are you familiar? Sounds vaguely familiar. But... She's a Newfoundland writer. And all of my like literary friends in Newfoundland are completely abuzz about this book. Ooh. What's it called? Small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club. Coles? Yeah, Coles. Megan gonna... Gale Coles. Let's see if I can get it in the library. Yeah. They always want to read extra copies of the local the stuff. The cover has a has a deer staring straight at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've seen that, yeah. So this will be my big dive back into Newfoundland fiction. <laughs> Yeah, I love reading books that people are buzzy about. Mm-hmm. Um, really zeitgeisty books. I guess that's the other thing about summer excitement is that there's always a big push of like brightly colored beach reads. And... Yeah, and it's good. It's fun to be able to join in a conversation. Exactly. Like I and now it winds up like I put three of the books I've hold on hold. There's a longer than six month wait. <laughs> And that's what happens with things like Convenience Store Woman. At some point, I don't know when, I put this on hold at the library. Yeah. And it, it just came in a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and I could not remember anything about it or why I put it on hold or where I heard about it. But I read it and it was good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I mean, I might I might pick that up. It sounds very interesting. Um it makes me think of the Lonesome Bodybuilder collection that I talked mm. about in the second episode of our show in that a lot of the, I mean, it's pretty much all female protagonists. Well, a couple of exceptions, but most of these stories have female protagonists and most of them have this kind of detachment, which sounds similar to what you've described. It's not quite as extreme as what you've described, but a lot of them like approach their surroundings with this slightly i wanted to say clinical and that's not quite right but odd cold i'm having trouble finding the right adjective Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it sounds similar the affect that you describe sounds similar and i really enjoyed that in that book so i I bet i would enjoy the convenience store woman as well 
Yeah. And like I said, it's like, it's a very short read. It took me a while because babies, but, but I bet you could read it a couple hours at yeah. a coffee shop. That's, that's such a nice length to sit down with something that if you have an hour and a half or two hours and a nice cup of coffee, you can get through it in one sitting. That's a nice feeling. Yeah. That's something that's my dream. It might be years from now, but someday I'm going to, going to go to a coffee shop. I read a whole book in one sitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someday it'll happen <laughs> when you're when you're uh, menopausal wine, like as as you were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, when I'm in my Diane Keaton phase. <laughs> yes, exactly. So much to look forward to. So much. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we should clue it up. I think we should. It's good night. It's been a great chat with you. It Th- has. Thank I you. Enjoyed it a lot. I always look forward to this. Me too. Yay. So this has been Dear Reader, and I have been Michael. And I am Emily. Yes, I don't know why I always use the past tense, like I'm transforming into something that's not Michael. Yeah. Well, by the time this comes out, you may be somebody totally different. <laughs> oh, yes. Every every morning we wake up and reboot our consciousness. So <laughs> a brand new day. You can find our show on Twitter at Dear Reader FM, and the show notes are at megaphonic.fm slash Dear Reader slash six. And we have some exciting uh, network news, I, I should mention. Uh, we now have a Patreon. So if you like this show or any of the other shows on our network, you can go to megaphonic.fm slash Patreon. And uh, for a small monthly pledge, you can get access to a bunch of bonus material um, and a members-only Slack, which is basically like a little chat room where lots of cool people um both the show creators and other supporters of the network can basically chit chat about this and that. And it would be really lovely to see you there metaphorically. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I think that's all that we have in terms of business. So yeah, until next time, um, take care. Bye. 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 Bye.